Amen. Um, as I was preparing uh, yesterday evening uh, for the possibility that I would have to preach, um, one thing just kind of came to mind, uh, something I've been trying to instill in our uh, Sunday school class. Um, I'm teaching uh, from teens to single adults. And if there's any group of people that is challenged about their faith, it's that group. And they need to be able to answer questions. But I tell them that they need to have three presuppositions. A presupposition means a position that you have before you even start any argument. And those positions you do not concede. One of them being that we serve a triune God. We observe our God in Scripture as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One in essence, three in persons. We will not concede that. Secondly, another point that we have is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. Therefore, God gets all of the glory in our salvation and not we ourselves by being able to do things good enough to be good enough for God. We will not concede that point in our discussions with the unbeliever. And lastly, a presupposition that we will come into every argument with is that the Bible as we have it in our hands is sufficient. It is His Holy Word. It is infallible, inspired, inerrant. It is what we base anything else we learn on is based on how does it line up with Scripture. Does that mean only the Bible? I mean, no, we use other, other means and methods to learn about Christ, other books, other teachers. Uh, you guys use a preacher every Sunday, right? We use those means and methods, but everything must be compared to Scripture. How does it line up with the Scripture? Because the Scripture is sufficient. And looking at those presuppositions, I thought, you know, there's, there's one thing that we must all know as Christians, that we must all believe as Christians, and that we must all do in order to call ourselves in the faith. We must trust the Bible. We must trust the Bible. And one of my favorite parts of Christian history, and I love all of it, I'm a history buff, so that's great, and Christian history and, and, and biblical history, redemption history is probably the most interesting side of history that you'll ever see. One thing that I love the most is the history of the preservation of the Bible from the beginning to the end. It's not only interesting, but to me it's also encouraging. It encourages me to know that this book that we can hold in our hands, that we can actually download on our tablets and our phones, is the most reliable document in history, period, bar none. It is the most reliable, and I hope by the end of this I'll prove that to you. I know I'm preaching to the choir because I see a lot of Bible thumpers in here, and I'm glad to be one myself. I love, I, we love the Word of God here. We preach the Word. We sing the Word. We pray the Word. We love the Word. Sunday school, what are we doing in Sunday school? They're learning Galatians, the Word of God. The couples are learning the Word of God. My, my youth and singles and and, and college-age kids are learning the Word of God. So guess what? If you come to our church, you're going to hear the Word of God. 
But one, of the, one, one thing that kind of sticks out to me, and I'll start with one of my, one of my heroes of the faith. On October 6, 1536, that was a long time ago, and actually the anniversary is coming up pretty quick, William Tyndale, you guys may have heard of Tyndale Publishing, some of you may have a Bible, if you look on the binding, it may say Tyndale on it, William Tyndale was strangled to death and burnt, his body was burnt after he died, and what was his crime? His crime was that he dared to challenge the papal authority and to translate the Bible into English so that common folks could read it for themselves. That was his crime. In fact, at a dinner party, he was sitting at a dinner party of one of his good friends who was actually, you know, they were all Catholic. Guess what? Everybody was back then. That was the only church. But they were sitting, and he had invited one of the bishops who was kind of in charge of the church in their area, and they had gotten into a discussion, a little argument about justification and those things that are clear in Scripture that the church was not making clear to the people. They were making it be in Latin so that only they would know it, and the people would just have to believe what they said. He looked that Catholic leader in the eye, and he said this. He said, if God spare my life, Ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. What was his goal in life? To, he saw the absolute necessity of what knowing the word of God would be for you, the individual believer. He saw what that, what that would do for their lives. Not just the Greek and the Hebrew scholars, not just the people of the church, but the individual man. If the individual man had the scriptures in their hands, he saw that the necessity of that being possible would change people's lives. And not too many years from him, we see people like Martin Luther, who, who as he was riding along, discovers, wait a second. I'm not saved by grace plus my own works. This says that the just shall live by faith in Christ. And we see so many reformers come after that. And thank God, because right now we're sitting in a church that believes what the Bible says, not what somebody tells us the Bible says. So I originally prepared this sermon, and as I reviewed it again, I was taken back to one of my favorite sermons. It's by Bodie Bauckham. I actually probably, I think I, listen, I, I think I watch or listen to this sermon at least once or twice a year because of the power, power of it. It's not very long. I think I've actually shared it with some of my friends in here. It's a short sermon. It's really good. But the, 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 the name of the sermon is Why I Believe the Bible. Now, I'm going to take some information that he uses directly in that um, in that sermon because it's kind of going to be kind of informative as it, as it pertains to the historical facts that we're fixing to look at. But in answer to the question, why should I believe the Bible? And guess what? You may hear that question 
someday. Somebody may say to you, the Bible-believing believer, they may say, well, why should I believe the Bible? And you'll be able to say, I'm glad you asked. Because an answer that he gives, I think, is so clear and thought out, and it makes the most sense. And once we begin to exposit this text we're going to use today, you're going to see, hey, this does make sense. And believe me, it's going to always be better than the answer, well, I tried it and it worked for me. Because people, people aren't listening to that. They want a, they want a truth that is knowledgeable. They want to know why you believe this. His answer is this. I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings were divine rather than human in origin. That's a very clear, concise answer. And I'm going to break it down for you with 1 Peter 1, 16 through 21. 1 Peter 1, 16 through 21. And, and side note, if you have a chance today, give Kendall a high five, a hug, or a handshake because he worked really hard this morning to get it so we could see it on the, on the screen. But now here, the infallible, inspired word of God 1 Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to you to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that our hearts and minds are open to it. Let us see the imperatives in your word that we may be quick to follow what you have to say. Let us see Christ in this narrative of scripture, that we may see him more clearly and love you more dearly. Most of all, let us understand why we must trust this word that you've given us. And we thank you so much for, for preserving it through, the, through history that we may have it in our hands so easily. In Christ's name, amen. We see a lot going on in these scriptures. And uh, Peter even uses an example from another part of scripture that we see, the Mount Transfiguration, right? But he's clear in this set of verses about the Scripture. He makes it clear that they are trustworthy 
and that they are inspired. And, I'll, and listen to me clearly, because this is an argument you may get. I don't know if you've received it yet. But the scriptures of the Old Testament are reliable, and the scriptures of the New Testament are reliable. Both are reliable. Some will argue they're not. Those people will argue from a point that is moot to us because we know that this is God's Word. So let's break it down. I'm going to read the first part of verse 16 again. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what Vodibachum answered in the beginning of that. He said that it's a reliable collection of historical documents. It is not literature. It is historical documents. There are points in history that can be traced back. And we see even now archaeologists proving these things that were said so many years ago, right? Some would say, you may have heard this before, you may not have. If not, I hope that you learned something here. Some would say that the Bible was written in the Council of Nicaea. They say that it was all a vast conspiracy, that the church leaders put their own agenda, that they rewrote everything and put their own agenda in it so that they could control people. If you've ever watched The Da Vinci Code or read those books, guess what? That's what he claims. And he claims all kinds of other lies about our Savior. And here's the thing. We have a problem with that because that is a work of fiction. And as one of, my, one of the guys I really like uh, said one time, he said, and it's not even that good of a fiction. Because here's the thing. If we look at what the Council of Nicaea was, it happened in the 300s. How many will agree? That was a long time ago. That was an early part of the church, right? It was convened for one purpose mainly, and other things were discussed because all of the church leaders came into one council. The main thing that it was discussing was the Arian heresy. You may not have heard of that, but it was very prominent in that day. The Arian heresy said that Jesus Christ was not God. In fact, Arius, the father of the Arian heresy, had songs written making fun of Christ and saying that he was just a man, he was not God. That was becoming prevalent in the early church. So guess what? They said, let's meet, let's stop this. Now, from the Council of Nicaea, the canon was also closed, but this was not something that they did in one meeting. Uh, Arlie Ray, let me give you an example of, of why I say this. Arlie Ray, all the time, when we t open up to the Bible at night, she'll go, now have we read all of that? I said, no baby, not even close. There's a lot of pages in this book, and we haven't read them all, but one day we're gonna. But you see, they're not going to, in one sitting, rewrite a Bible. Not going to happen. It had been worked on from the time that the transcripts began being made, the manuscripts began being sent out to the church. The preservation of God's Word was at work. So, the Arian heresy was knocked out by the uh, Nicene Creed. 
You might want to read that sometime. It's very good. talks about how God is God. He is a Trinitarian God, and he, Jesus Christ, was God the Son. But that's the first thing they'll say is, that's when they wrote it. Well, no, that's not what happened. We know it was not what happened. We have very clear records of that. The next thing is, they'll talk about how it's unreliable, how there's no way we could have preserved it. There's no way that we could have done that. It's not reliable because it doesn't have enough copies of the original within the proper time period. So let's talk about manuscript reliability. And this is when I put my nerd glasses on because I love this stuff. And I hope you guys go with me. Um, I think Drew's with me on this stuff too because we've talked about this before, so it's a lot of fun. Manuscript reliability. I'm going to use three contemporary works. You may have heard of some of these works, okay? The first contemporary work means it was made around the same age as the Bible, are the works of Aristotle. Now, the works of Aristotle are taught in college classes. They're thought of as very reliable. Let me tell you about the reliability of the works of Aristotle. Of the original manuscripts, do you know how many we have? Seven. And guess when the earliest is from? 1,400 years after, yet it's reliable. Let's go to another work, the works of Plato. Also, in school, we know about Plato. We were taught about him. He's a little more reliable than Aristotle, though. We've got 49 manuscripts of, Arist of, of, of Plato from within 1,300 years of the time that it was written. If that is considered reliable, we can trust it. Let's go to one that we may have all heard about. Now, this is considered the most reliable historical book uh, or writing of the time, and that's Homer's Iliad. And it seems like it's pretty good. 643 original manuscripts of that. Now, that's pretty reliable, and it's also within 500 years, so... Much closer to the time period, many more, more manuscripts. It's much more reliable. So we say that the book that we get from uh, Penguin Books that says Homer's Iliad, right? We open it up. We trust that we're reading what we're supposed to be reading. So let's talk about manuscript reliability. The closest we can get is 643 manuscripts within 500 years of this fiction written by Homer. Let's talk about our New Testament. Of our New Testament... There are 5,600 original manuscripts. Almost 5,000 more. And we date back to within 50 years of the actual events. There is, right now, under glass, in, a, in some museum somewhere, a little piece about this big. And it is from fir the first chapter of John. And it dates back to 70 A.D. That, my friends, is manuscript reliability. And here's the thing. If we look back historically, historical finds, we have found 
manuscripts laid out in old churches that have been demolished. And guess what? What we could see, it was the same things we have now, almost in the same order. We have a trustworthy manuscript. We have a trustworthy book. So, in order for the Council of Nicaea to have plotted and planned to change it all so they could control people, let me give you the hoops they would have had to jump through, okay? Now, I know this is very historical stuff. Some of you may be going to sleep on me if you are. Maybe you'll dream about the Bible. But I want you to hear this because this is such a good thing. This is such a good thing to know. And I love it. I love it, It, as y'all can tell, because I'm still talking about it, right? In order for the Council of Nicaea to have plotted, planned, to change it all, to fit their agenda, the first thing they would have had to deal with was 5,600 manuscripts from within 50 years that they had in their hands. And at that time, they probably had more. Do you know what they would have had to have done? Get their hands on every physical copy and alter it to fit their changes. That, my friends, is a ridiculous thought because it was spread from India through the Roman Empire to Ethiopia. All these manuscripts were all over. Do you think they could have done that? They didn't have cars. They didn't have planes. It wasn't going to happen. But as if that's not enough, which to me, that's more than enough. There also existed at the time of the Council of Nicaea three translations into different languages, which means there were other manuscripts in other languages spread out throughout the church too. So they would have had to not only get a hold of the originals, they'd have had to get a hold of all those translations and fix them into the language too to show their changes that they were making to control the church. Pretty ridiculous. But here's the other problem that they would have had. At that time, in 300 A.D., 95% of the New Testament texts had been commentated on by other writers and commentaries. So these men had quoted these scriptures and commented on 95% of the New Testament texts. So they would have had to get a hold of all of their copies of their commentaries and fix their commentaries to match what's going on. Do you, see, do you see the hoops we're going through here? We believe that our Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents, period. And we trust it. But it gets even better than that because at the last part of that verse, verse 16, it says, but, and this is Peter talking, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When? On Mount Transfiguration. He said, we saw it with our eyes. Me, James, and John saw it. I said some dumb stuff. I remember it clearly. I heard the voice of God said, right? I was there. And that same thing is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, right? Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. It says, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with 
the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul says, most of whom are still alive. Eyewitnesses writing down these things, saying what they saw, saying what happened in front of their faces. And they're doing it while other eyewitnesses who also saw these things are still alive. Now, if I see something, and you see something, and you come up with this crazy story about what happened, yet I was there too, don't you think I'd call you out based on what you're saying? Yet, there is no record of anything Peter, Paul, John, James, any of the writers of the New Testament, Nothing that they wrote, there's no record that any other eyewitnesses came and said, that's not true. Especially something this important. Wouldn't you think that they would say, wait a second, Mount Transfiguration, what are you talking about? If James and John hadn't saw what Peter saw, or, or if he'd said this about it and they saw something else, don't you think they would have said, and especially knowing Peter and John, I mean, they're racing to the tomb, right? And they're having to, we're seeing in Scripture that John said, I beat him. Right? So we would see, and then Paul says, and I called Peter out to his face. You see those things? They would have called each other out if this wasn't reliable. They would have said, no, no, no. We didn't see that. Never happened. Don't you think that would have been recorded? The fist fight between Peter and John over the Mount of Transfiguration? That would have been big news. We would have known that. But they all wrote the same thing. Verses 17 and 18 say, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is recounting something that is so amazing. So supernatural. Can you imagine? You just walk up the mountain with Jesus, all of a sudden, boom. There's Elijah and Moses, and then you see all the glory of God displayed as Christ is transfigured before them, right? And then, they're, then as if that wasn't enough, the voice from heaven echoes, this is my beloved son, hear him, right? He never forgot this, and he wrote it down. And this was supernatural. James and John would have told you the same thing. That was supernatural. I've never seen anything like that. So when we hear in that statement from Vody Bauckham, they report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. The Mount Transfiguration was very clearly a fulfillment of prophecy. How? Because God said, Jesus, 
is the Christ. He is my son. Listen to him. And who was gathered with him? Moses, the giver of the law. Elijah, a prophet. The law and the prophets. Seeing the word made flesh. We see prophecy fulfilled. This is a divine moment. And then they can tell us about it. The New Testament writings clearly show that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of prophecies. I, I did a study one time uh, for Christmas and just went through all the prophecies. It was like for Sunday school, I just said, here's this prophecy, here it is in the New Testament. Here's this prophecy, here it is in the New Testament. He fulfilled them all. Not one was left behind. 1 John 1, 1 through 4 says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He's saying, the reason we're writing this to you, the reason we're telling you about this stuff, is because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. And in Him, we have found peace and joy and hope. And we want you to know about it. So we're writing it down so you'll never forget. Verse 19 says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Notice what they said. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now they had had experiences. But what does Peter always place the emphasis on? Is it about the awesome experience about all the fish? Is it about the walking on the water? Is it about uh, seeing him transfigured on the mountain? Is that what it's all about? No, he even says here, the voice came. And it said, this is my beloved son. So Peter looked past just being in a cool experience, seeing a cool healing, seeing 5,000 fed, seeing all those fish in the net, seeing all these things. He looked past that to one specific important thing that Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the key, the point, the most important thing of all of Scripture. And they knew that Scripture was more important than our feelings. Verse 20 and 21 says, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy has ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
Notice the last part of it, of that little statement that we have. It says, and claimed that their writings were divine rather than human in origin. They're saying, we didn't write it. The Holy Spirit worked and did it. The word prophecy here actually means that the gift of communicating and enforcing revealed truth. That means revealing truth in the Word of God, which comes directly from one source, God Himself, God the Holy Spirit. He reveals those things to us. He shows us. All truth comes from one place. John 17 says, John 17, 17 says, it's my favorite verse, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The truth. Not my truth, not a truth. The truth. The word of God is the truth. Calvin said about these verses that we've been talking about, he said, he means that it is not godly for them to come out of, out with something out of their own hands. So he's saying, it means that just producing things, if they had just produced things that they thought were cool, their own ideas or whatever, it wouldn't have been godly. The reason the word of God is godly is because the Holy Spirit breathed through these men and they wrote what God said to write. What God intended to be written was written down on these manuscripts in this book. The authors were inspired. Inspired means the, the scriptures are breathed out by God. And that's every part of them. Even the hard ones. From Genesis to Revelation. No S on Revelation, right? From Genesis to Revelation. It's God's words. God spoke this out. God breathed it out. How can we know this? A practical statement of, of how we can know that this is, this is pretty inspired is this, that the Bible has 40 writers at least. It was written over 1,500 years across three continents. Yet, it has one theme, salvation through Christ. It has no contradictions. I know what people will say, well, it's just contradicting itself all over again. No, you probably hadn't read the whole thing then. Anyone who tells you that it does have contradictions has not read the whole thing. They've picked this one and this one and tried to pit them against each other, but God's word is one word. The word of God is the point of our preaching. We teach the text. It has application principles to our lives. So as, as I preach and as Kelby preaches, our goal is to drive you to the Bible yourselves to drive you to his word. Why would we want to do that? Very simply. The Bible reveals God. It shows who God is. There's no God outside of the God of the Bible, period. The Bible says that itself. Secondly, is it has that central theme of redemption from Genesis 3.15 when it says, he'll, he'll bruise your heel, but you'll crush his head fact that he didn't kill Adam and even start over he killed an animal and clothed them redemption all throughout history also it reveals who Christ is it shows us the gospel it shows the salvation purchased by the one who could fulfill the law and it is the means that the Holy Spirit uses to teach us 
<coughs> as Christians, we really should love his word. So, all these things we've said, and in our context as Bible believers, as Christians, it makes sense to us, right? I mean, this stuff makes sense. Why we trust it. Why we believe these things. These things make sense to us because we're in here, we're Bible believers. But how does this affect our modern day out there? How, how does it affect outside these doors? I would say for one thing, it's, it's hope for our families. It leads men to be family shepherds to, to point their kids to Christ and point their kids to the Word. It tells our kids, hey, even though they tell you a lie, the truth is in the Word. Trust what the Word of God says. It tells women how to be women. That we can define a, what a woman is by how God made you. Right? That we can trust God as creator. The second thing is the cultural answers that we're looking for out there, they're not going to find in any other system. There's no world system that's going to give you the cultural answers. The cultural answers are in the word of God. What is the problem right now in this world? Some would say Democrats. Some would say Republicans. Some would get real specific and say it's Trump or Biden. I will tell you, let me break it down for you very clearly. What is the problem in this world out there? Sin is the problem. What's the solution for sin? Jesus Christ, period. That's the problem and the solution out there. It has the cultural answers for us. Let's look at this next set of texts. If Peter, if we kept on reading Peter, he says in, in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, he says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, like the Arian heresy we talked about earlier, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality the way they feel. It's, it's really nice feeling. It's really super nice Christianity. And because of them, the way of truth was blasphemed and will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. If that's not the prosperity gospel, I don't know what it is. Their condemnation is from long ago, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So another reason that the Bible has importance for the modern day is that it will protect us from heretical teaching, which we will hear every time we open up anything out there that has to do with Christian TV, Christian radio, all these things that are not telling us the truth, the Word of God tells us the truth. Measure all of it by the Word of God. If it don't match up, chunk the other, keep the Word. Next is the fact that there's a rise in experientialism and emotionalism leading us, a lot of people, to the new age because they want to be at one with their body and they want to feel good about themselves when really what we know is that in ourselves, we need Christ. <laughs> I don't need myself. I will never save myself. I need Christ. I don't need to be at one in my mind. I need to be at one with the one who saved us, Jesus Christ. And the last is there's a, uh, and you've probably seen it, there is a huge emphasis on personal revelations, uh, new things that God's doing, and extra biblical words from the Lord. People pay for that stuff now. 
Um, it's on the it's on the shelves of uh, Hobby Lobby. If you go in Hobby Lobby, you'll see the Jesus Calling section, which was written because she said that she read the Bible and she just wanted more. How could we want more word from God than what he has said to us in his word? We need to trust his word, not some lady who says Jesus Calling, who uh, oddly has edited this book, I think, 14 times at last count, which means... God said something to her, yet he changed his mind. I don't know. It's all confusing, right? What's not confusing? God's word. Trust his word. Never judge what is true by how you feel about it. We talked a little bit about that in our Sunday school this morning. Let me combine it up. Because some of us want to feel nice and kind and want to apologize for God when God says what the truth is. We don't have to apologize for that. Put the word first. We judge by what scripture says about things. But most of all, I hope that I'll leave you with this, that it would change our lives and our hearts and our minds if we would just understand that scripture is the great story of God redeeming us. It's the gospel. It points us from the fall and we don't stay there. It points us from the fall to the hill of Calvary where Jesus Christ accomplished the great work of redemption for us. That's why we must trust the Bible. Let's pray.